So, this doesn't happen too often, but Ray had no idea where we were going to start this morning's message, and I'd like to show you. (laughs) So, maybe this is for somebody today. Well, what? Right? So, let me just call your attention to this, and um, I think it'll be helpful. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Romans 8.28. I think um, there's a psalm that unpacks it a little further, and I think it's helpful for us to unpack this verse. Uh, We're not going to dissect this verse today, uh, but this is certainly one of the verses that's uh, oft quoted and misunderstood. And I want to just unpack a little bit, okay? The Lord watches over those who fear Him, those who rely on His unfailing love. He rescues them from death and keeps them alive in times of famine. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Our hope is in you alone. Psalm 33, 18 through 22. As we, uh, last week we talked about personal peace. And uh, if you had to miss, I really do recommend that you listen to that. You can pull it up on, on your phone and stream at cityharborchurch.com or uh, through iTunes, get the podcast. We talked about personal peace found in a relationship with Jesus. As we turn to the Christmas season, let's take a look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. It lists four women who responded to hurt with faith in God as their deliverer. They said, our hope is in you. We rely on your unfailing love. Or... You're my only hope. <laughs> two weeks. Two, two weeks. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. Uh, most of you would be uh, familiar with, you've, you've heard me in the past say, everything about Jesus gives us something to learn about God. Okay? And, and even though uh, genealogies are not typically where preachers spend much time because they already put enough people to sleep. But I think there's something that we can learn from this. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. A descendant of David and of Abraham. Now those are relevant and important thoughts to what we're going to talk about, but we're not going to have time to fully unpack that. Then in verse, uh, it goes through the genealogy, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Verse 21 She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. This is the angel talking to Joseph about Mary. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why would we talk about Jesus? Well, even agnostics can't avoid using his name in different ways. 
Verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet and quoting the prophet, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Everything about Jesus gives us something to learn about God. Even from the beginning, this reference to Abram, Abraham as being in the genealogy of Christ. Abraham had a promise that was given to him through God that he would be blessed so that he could be a blessing. And you know, you can pray that, Lord, bless me that I could be a blessing to others. That's called appropriating the Abrahamic covenant. Or, hey, Abraham got a promise, I want that promise for my life. Blessed to be a blessing. And in the past, we've talked about, in Abram's story, we have the story of Hagar. We're going to talk about the story of a few women today. We can't really pass that up because it was Hagar who said the angel came to her and said the Lord has heard your cry and she's the one that called the name Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah El El Roy the God who sees me she said it is God who truly sees me have I truly seen the God who sees me Genesis 16 31 we've talked about her before that's relevant and this this genealogy is bookended with Mary Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary who was given a promise, Mary who was given a promise that she was a very ordinary person to be sure, could have felt lonely, could have felt marginalized. She was given a promise that was great, that was life-changing, that was unbelievable, a great promise that would require of her extraordinary faith. So that sets a good context for us to talk about these four ladies that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And the two verses that we just read that we had on the screen are relevant to their journey. So are you ready to engage your imagination with me a little bit this morning? Okay. So we're going to start, and I'm I'm just going to walk you through their stories, okay? I'm just going to verbally walk you through their stories. I'll give you the passages of Scripture so that you can look them up. First of all, Tamar. Tamar's story is in Genesis 38. It shows that her first and second husband were both considered so wicked, so evil by God that he killed them. God God killed them. That's a bad marriage. <laughs> Her father-in-law is Judah. Judah is one of the brothers of Joseph. You might remember Judah because he's considered the good brother before Benjamin came along. Because Judah's the one that said to his other brothers, hey, let's not kill him. That was Judah. He was the good guy. Right? Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. Judah is the one who's responsible, according to their custom, to have another brother marry her to take care of her financial needs. But he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Time goes on. And what happens to Tamar? Tamar hears that her father-in-law is going to be in town. She wraps her head He sees her, he doesn't recognize her, and he treats her like a prostitute and he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Months go by, she's pregnant with twins. And she has a decision to make. She confronts him. She chooses hope. Where there wasn't evidence to support it. She chooses faith in God who provides salvation. She didn't know when when she confronted him if he would kill her. 
But she knew because she knew because she saw God kill her first and her second husband that God had a sense of right and wrong, even though she had been wronged. So here she is, pregnant, expecting twins, and she makes a decision to confront Judah, the quote, man of God. He comes to repentance, he confesses his sin, he makes things right with her, and he publicly states that she is more righteous than he is. From then on, she's welcome, she's accepted, she's a part of the family. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be her? This is, this is someone who's in the genealogy of Jesus who is specifically mentioned because there's something about her life that we can learn from. You know, it's the holidays. A lot of times you get people around that you don't normally spend time with. And, and, and it's also a time, you know, where we think about, uh, maybe some of our relatives that have passed on. I think about my grandmothers who have passed away and I think about their life story. And I think I'm, I'm thankful that I have parents that would delve into the life story of their parents and then tell us their parents' stories and I've learned from the life story of my grandmothers. And I think about that. And Listen, what's dangerous to try to take on these four ladies' stories is that as a stereotypical male, I just do some mansplaining and we just reduce it to some platitudes. And that's wrong. All right, we're going to meet these women in heaven, hopefully. Right? And when I get there, one of my favorite songs, when I get there, I want to hear Tamar's story. And I wonder... What would she say if she were here today? You're starting to engage your imagination? Come on. The second woman in the genealogy here is Rahab. Now who is Rahab? Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab's not an Israelite. Right? We got some racial differences going on here, right? Rahab is a known prostitute, and the, the specific word that's used to describe her, there's, there was different kind of prostitutes in this day. There were religions that um, used prostitutes in their temples as a part of how you would worship their gods. And it does not use that kind of word for her as a prostitute. It uses what you might say a secular word for as a prostitute. And she she was successful. She was good at what she did. She took care of herself to the point where she had a home in the city wall. The city wall was a structure. City walls were thick. They were thick enough that the gates was a place where uh, oftentimes in this culture where people would meet, they would have meetings, you would sign contracts, even government decisions would be made in the gates. So the, the wall was a thick thing and it was something not necessarily that wealthy people would, would have, but something where she paid the bills. And I want to just say something about prostitution. I started off when I was younger doing outreach to homeless teenagers, and that led me to learn that some of them worked as prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. And through that and through other ministry and some of our network churches, and we have a really a number of churches that have strong uh, ministries to prostitutes, and I've met a number of prostitutes that have come to Christ and come to faith, and through my volunteer work as a police chaplain in Baltimore, I've met a number of prostitutes in Baltimore. It is a rough life. It's not a life you would want. It's not what it is glamorized to be. Rahab is a prostitute. And she's learned how to take care of herself. 
And Moses has passed on from the scene and Joshua's come onto the scene and God's given Joshua a word and, and the first city to go into this promised land, a place of spiritual rest that is meant to be an analogy for us about what our salvation is supposed to be, a place of rest, a place of peace. The first city that needed to, Joshua needed to take down was the city where Rahab lived and he sent out spies, right? One of which who is Caleb that we see later in the story. And what do the spies do? The spies are looking for a safe place and they find Rahab and she gives them a safe harbor. So here's this woman who's learned how to take care of herself. And she could have done a lot of different things, right? She could have extorted them for money. She could have brought them into the house and then killed them and tried to get a bounty from her own government and her own city. But she doesn't do that. She gives them the information that they needed to understand that God had already delivered this city to them. She was aware of a spiritual reality that they were not aware of because she told them, listen, people in this city are afraid of you. They know that you serve the one true living God. They know that that God has already delivered this city into your hands. Come attack this city. You will be victorious, but protect my family. Just like Tamar She had to stand up. She had to make a decision. She had to ask for the safety of her family. That's courage. Are you with me? Now think about it. She could have done anything. She chose hope. She chose faith in God who provides salvation. She bet her life. She was relying completely on God. And that produced in her a courage that was supernatural. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11.31, the so-called hall of faith, of fame, uh, hall of fame of faith. She's mentioned that it was her faith, her survival, literally that the fact that she survived was a credit to her faith. And then she's welcomed into the family and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Third, Ruth. The story of Ruth, well, you can find that in the book of Ruth. It's in there. You can look for it in the table of contents. Ruth's story that, that we get actually starts with another Israelite man who left God's land when times were tough. Took his wife, took his two sons, and he took them to a place, to a geographic location, where they could marry women that they were forbidden to marry. And that included Ruth. They get married at 10 years, so Ruth is married to one of these sons for 10 years. And what happens? 10 years later, the dad and the two sons, all three of them die, leaving Ruth, her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law, Naomi, without provision. There's nobody there to pay the bills. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, listen, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to my hometown. You stay here with your family. She's, she's, she's trying to look out for her, but she doesn't know what's going to happen. But remember, Ruth married into this interracial marriage. In that culture, she's probably not going to be accepted back with her own people. But Naomi doesn't know what to do. She knows that she's not going to be accepted back with her hometown either. She says, you need to stay. Naomi, Ruth has a choice. She has a choice. 
She says, I will follow you where you go. Your God will be my God. She chooses hope. She chooses faith in a God she doesn't know. She chooses faith in God who provides salvation. She bets her life. She's relying on God and it produces in her a courage. She goes back, we see the story of the love story of Ruth and Boaz, a good family friend of ours wrote a Broadway-worthy musical about it under his wings. It's, it's wonderful. She chooses to go to a place where she would be an outcast, and that's where God brings a family redeemer in Boaz. Boaz takes up the responsibility that was neglected by somebody else. And that's in Ruth chapter 4, verse 12, we get this verse. May the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. See, the people of God were seeing this theme that was being woven. Perez is a really important person we don't have time to talk about today, but who was a type of Christ. And Perez had a story in his life, and he was the son of Tamar. And when Ruth has a son, the promise, what's spoken over to her, is that her son would be like Perez. And then they're listed in the genealogy of Jesus through Boaz. Boaz, a type of Christ, a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer. There's a connection there that people recognized. There's something that we can learn from this. Fourth, Bathsheba. How do you tell this story in a few minutes? <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 11, First Chronicles chapter 20 is where we see her story start. What do we see? We see King David. Conquest has been happened. The, the defending of the kingdom has happened. He sends Joab, his military leader, to go and do his job. Sends Joab to go do his job. He sees Bathsheba. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. She sends word to him. So what does King David do? He attempts to cover up the affair. He sends for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to come back from the battlefront, get, tries to get him drunk multiple times so that he would go home and sleep with his wife so that it would look like it was his baby that she was carrying. That doesn't work because Uriah, a Hittite who's not an Israelite, another racial divide that we got here, another multiracial marriage, right? We got going on here because she was, Bathsheba was an Israelite. So he that's going on. But Uriah is righteous. And so David has to conspire for his murder. So King David commits murder to cover up his affair. The prophet Nathan confronts King David about his sins. And King David repents, as we see in Psalm 51. Then he marries Bathsheba. And as a part of the consequence of their sin, their first baby dies. Bathsheba has four sons, Shimei, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. And I think it's interesting that she named one of the sons Nathan, the prophet who confronted David. They had this long-term relationship with the prophet Nathan. That's kind of unusual. A lot of people like to run away from the prophet who confronts them with their sin. So the firstborn dies and Solomon comes along. And again, Bathsheba has to choose hope in confronting, in, 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 in her actions, 
She has to choose hope. She's got to choose faith in God who provides salvation. She's got to choose to bet her life on God, to rely on God. And her making those decisions produces courage in her that is life-changing, that comes in handy because later on, one of David's other sons, Adonijah, is declaring himself king and is becoming a threat to Bathsheba and her son Solomon. And so Bathsheba has to go to David and again ask him to be righteous and to do what he had promised to do, which he had previously promised to make Solomon king. Bathsheba has to stand up for what's right. Now, We focused on their courage because I don't want there to be even a hint of you to feel like me talking about the difficulties of their life makes them a victim. You hear me? But let's talk about the reality of their life for a moment. These are women who suffered men making bad decisions, making mistakes. I'm not going to ask if that sounds familiar. I've been married 20 years. I've made some mistakes. These are women who suffered men making mistakes, disobeying God, literally disobeying God. In some cases, they were so, men were so wicked that God killed them. The same God who Peter wrote is not willing that any should perish. And yet these women said, your God will be my God. That sounds just as crazy as the verse we started with, which God will work out all things for good. They chose to look past the broken men in their life and see a loving, faithful God. Most of them experienced shame, abandonment, being looked at, talked about as the other woman, that girl. You remember who we're talking about here, right? Illegitimate children, prostitution. And I want to come to this point. We need to recognize that other people, particularly men, did not see them as valuable. Other people did not see them as deserving of equal rights. Men and women both treated these women in that way. Other people did not see these women as worthy of love and respect. And I pose the question to you today, were they less than? No. No, God's created every human, every human in His image, whether they realize it or not. Is God the God of the good-looking, the popular, and the privileged? Oh, heck no. He's the God of all. Right? So, let's come back. Each one was seen choosing hope, choosing faith in God who provides salvation, and relying on God. Are those lessons we can take away? Yeah. Let's come back to these verses, because I think they apply to these women and they apply to us. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Do you think that they would have liked to have heard those words? Yeah? The Lord, and, and 
I don't have time today, but I think you could, in your Bible, do a grammatical breakdown of this, this passage. Break down the action words, circle the God words, circle the you words, and, and really break down this passage. It would be helpful for you to take away lessons from the lives of these four ladies and apply it to us as we look to Jesus and Christmas and, and hope and how hope actually works in the real world with the real stuff we deal with. The Lord watches over those who fear him. Now, we've got to unpack that fear word. That's a specific word that it refers to a constant awareness of, a respect for, a submission to, and a constant awareness of. That's what that word means. The Lord watches over those who fear him. So, those who rely on, and that's a really important word, and because what can happen is life can go good enough that we stop relying on God. Where our functional relationship is that the, per, the name that's on that paycheck, that's the one that makes me feel comfortable. Do I count on God more than Chinese food? See, here's the thing with Chinese food. Like, I know what I'm going to get, what it's going to smell like, what it's going to taste like, and when it's going to arrive. <laughs> Do I have the same kind of relationship with a living God? Will I bank on Him? Do I rely on Him? He rescues them, action words, He rescues them from death and keeps them alive in times of famine. Did we see that in these stories? We put our hope in the Lord. You're my only hope. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in You alone. I want to do a callback to the series we just finished with these lessons we can take away from it. First, from life's healing choices, God never wastes a hurt. I don't know who's here today that needed to hear that God works all things together for good, but clearly the Holy Spirit's speaking. Ray brings it up as the text this morning, right? Somebody is here. Somebody needs to hear this encouragement. God never wastes a hurt. God loves people who feel like they are far from Him. Each one of these four women and Hagar would have felt like they were far from God. They were other than. They weren't in the accepted group. They weren't that. You hear what I'm saying? Do you know anybody that would describe themselves as not a church person, not a Jesus person, not a good person? I'm far from God, right? What is our God like? What does even the genealogy of Jesus teach? It teaches us that God loves people who feel like they are far from Him. Have you ever been there? Is there anybody in your life who is there? God sees value in people when others do not. I see bad marriages, prostitution, mistakes. God sees value in people when others do not. Well, how do we respond to this? What do we do? Well, we've got to choose hope. We've got to choose faith in a God who provides salvation. We need to rely on God. Yeah, that sounds nice. How do you do that? Matthew knew. 
because he was very specific to record the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Jesus is asked, what is the most important thing in the scriptures? The law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Jesus is asked, what is the most important thing in the scriptures? And this is Jesus' response. Love God with all you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's really simple, Pastor Ben. Yeah. And there's not a day of your life where it's not relevant. There's not a challenge you walk through where this isn't the answer. Yeah, but my problem's here. Yeah, God sees that. He can heal that. But it also, He doesn't heal it without you doing this. We don't walk in healing. We don't walk in freedom like we've just discussed the last eight weeks. We don't walk in those things without doing this. You've got to love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a genius in the way that God gives us counsel. And a part of that genius is that he knows that it's got to be a multiplied thing. It's got to be a thing that we do and we do for others and they do for others. That's how the world becomes a better place. It's not my idea. It's the genius of what God does. So what we can do, what you can do as a next step is a pray. Ask God for help. Write some stuff down. Take some time. Write some stuff down about observations that you have that you take away today from these stories. Write some lessons. Write some next steps. And share We're going to go back to worship. We're going to have time for you to enjoy refreshments and each other's company. This is a perfect opportunity. This is a safe place for you to tell someone else about what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and what your response is to this. There's never going to be an easier place for you to tell someone else than right here, right now. And what I found is that if we don't ask God for help, and we don't write stuff down, and we don't talk about it, We don't do it. The change isn't real. It doesn't go anywhere. Are you with me? Yeah? Now, we're going to transition. I want to pray for you. We're going to play a song that you can listen to, and then we're going to pray, sing a couple songs you can sing. And I want you to know that you're released to pray for each other, look for someone that needs prayer, ask someone for prayer as we sing. It's this is family, right? This isn't one of those churches where you have to do this at this time. This is family. So when we go into time of singing, I want you to be able to pray for somebody else. And I want you to feel free to get some refreshments, bring the food stuff back down here. This is family time. Sound good? But I'm going to pray for you. And before we dismiss, we're going to sing one um, short song for you to listen to because that I think is relevant because each of these women would have experienced fear and hurt and shame. And I think it's really important for us to think about how God responds to those things. Lord, I thank you so much that you're here in this place